Hello, and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Karis Ellison. And I'm Sharon Shu. Today we're discussing the second half of Unnatural Death, the third Peter Whimsy novel. In a content note for our listeners, Unnatural Death contains several instances of a racial slur. We will not be saying the word ourselves, but we will be having a discussion in this episode about its use. And today, we're spoiling the whodunit right away. So if you haven't finished reading Unnatural Death, pause the podcast until you've turned the last page and then come back and join us. And now let's dig in to Unnatural Death. So Sharon, in our last episode, we struggled a good bit to talk about this book at all without giving away everything about the really complex murder plot. It's it's really hard to discuss, isn't it? It is. I, I was just kind of chuckling to myself that we essentially told our listeners who haven't finished the book to just not listen to this episode. <laughs> Turn off the episode. Go away. <laughs> read it and come back. Because, yeah. yeah, it's it's impossible to talk about this book in any kind of detail without just, just blah, giving everything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, last episode was a little bit of a struggle, but... We are going to give away everything right now. Yes. Um, so would you, would you like to give our listeners just a little reminder slash crash course in the moving parts of the mystery? Uh, yes, I will. I will do my best because there are many. But <laughs> listeners, this is your last warning. Avert thine ears. Um, if you have not yet <laughs> finished the book or don't want to know the whodunit. <laughs> Sharon, I just took a sip of coffee. (laughs) You can't say things like that. (laughs) Okay. We are very, very professional, experienced podcasters. (laughs) Yeah, this mystery is, I think, in many ways more of a how-done-it than a who-done-it. And I think we'll we'll Mm. save the method of murder for a little further into this episode. Um, And I'm certainly not the first person to make that observation. But because it's sort of a non-traditional mystery in that, you know, there aren't multiple suspects that that appear. It is really, really difficult to talk about this book without this like shared assumption of, of knowing who the culprit is. So, so the whodunit, it turns out that Peter is right all along. It is in fact, Mary Whitaker. Mm-hmm. Shocking. shocking, shocking. So, so surprised. Um, Mary Whitaker killed her aunt. Mary Whitaker killed Bertha Gotobed. Mary Whitaker will go on to kill other people in the uh, second half of this book and attempt to kill other people. This book is just full of murder and attempted murder. So, so much murder. murder. The highest body count, I think, of any Sayers novel. I think by far, right? Yeah. Yeah, significantly. And it turns out that uh, Mrs. Forrest, who was a character that turned up after Bertha Gotobed's body is found as, you know, being connected to the five pound note that's found in her purse mm-hmm. um, and whom we briefly mentioned last time. It turns out that Mrs. Forrest was Mary Whitaker's alter ego. She'd set up this whole other persona in town um, in order to like hide some evidence and to lure other characters in so that she could 
murder them or try to. And that that kind of doesn't come out until towards the very end of the book because the Mrs. Forrest side plot is a little bit of a red herring where Peter and Parker actually go to meet with her. And I think one thing that this book does pretty cleverly do, I think because we have Miss Clemson as an additional point of view character, is that you kind of don't realize until much later on that like, oh yeah, Peter and Parker never meet Mary Whitaker until the end, right? They just meet Mrs. Forrest. And Miss Clemson never meets Miss Forrest. She just meets Mary Whitaker. And so there's kind of all these strands that are kept apart. Yeah, this would be a difficult book to film because you like the audience would be seeing these two people and it would be difficult to have it be realistic but also have them not realize that it's the same person but our detectives can't know that because the whole like the book would be over yeah halfway through if peter had just happened to see mary whitaker once Mm -hmm. he would have recognized mrs forrest right away and so like that separation between the two arms of the investigation is really crucial to keeping the plot worrying along that's a really good point it's it's definitely a plot that like maybe only works in a non-visual format i think Mm. i mean you could do it but i think you would have to it would really have to be done carefully and I mean, like, obviously, there's a big visual difference between Mary Whitaker and Mrs. Mm-hmm. Forrest, right? Like, Mary Whitaker is kind of described as being this, she's fashionable, but not feminine when she's described from Miss Clemson's right. perspective. People always call her handsome. Right. She's described as handsome. She's described as beautifully tailored, but with harsh, strong lines. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of get a Katherine Hepburn vibe. Yeah. But then Mrs. Forrest is described as overly feminine, like almost a caricature of femininity. You know, like she wears heavy makeup and her eyebrows are painted black and she wears like a a peroxide blonde wig and, you know, her nails are Mm -hmm. all done. Though she is, you know, we we mentioned last time when we were talking about the the kind of depiction of lesbianism or of queer Mm -hmm. sexuality in this book that Mary Whitaker kind of struck us both as maybe a sex repulsed asexual and Mm -hmm. definite definitely repulsed by interacting with Peter. Yes. Yeah. And the thing is she's in her Mrs. Forrest disguise when mm-hmm. when they have that encounter, when Peter goes and is trying to get evidence out of Mrs. Forrest, and he has this sort of realization that she's sort of very awkwardly trying to seduce him. Mm-hmm. And so he puts on this kind of show of like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, kiss her really passionately. And he immediately sort of twinges onto the fact that she goes completely rigid in his arms she you know she doesn't like what's happening and so I I suppose we gave a little bit of a clue ourselves last episode because we talked about that scene (laughs) in reference to Mary Whitaker in terms of Mary Whitaker but it happens with Mrs. Forrest (laughs) hopefully we didn't spoil it for anyone but yeah that's such a that's such an awkward Mm -hmm. scene it it's so it's ambiguous in a lot of ways you're right it's like is she repulsed by physical contact or is it just that she's repulsed by men but The thing is that we don't see Mary Whitaker have a relationship with anyone that isn't a relationship that's manipulative with a power imbalance where her goal is her own advantage, right? So we, at no point, it's hard to analyze Mary Whitaker as a character because at no point in the book do we interact with her really on a genuine level where we know anything about her. You know, we don't know anything about her 
about how she operates as a as a person other than other than as a as a murderer as as a murder machine (laughs) right she's just she's just out here killing people and she's out here for all she can get and she's like remorseless yeah and it's like why you know like with in whose body where we also have we have a very elaborate murder plot we have you know all these things going on but we also have this whole long thing where we see get to see things from the murderer's perspective and like have him explain himself mm-hmm. but mary whitaker it's just like yeah she's i i feel like she's a character who's almost entirely without an interior or at least without mm-hmm. an interior that we as readers can access right we don't know what matters to her yeah other than getting this fortune that she thinks that she's due you know but like we don't know like are there people who matter to her Mm -hmm. or is she kind of like freak someone who lacks any moral conscience right i i think what's interesting about that is you know you and i have talked uh, quite a bit of length at how carefully sayers always populated her world Mm -hmm. even these you know very minor characters who kind of flit across the page get backstories and get you know Mm -hmm. their points of view kind of highlighted and so forth and so it's really fascinating to me for her to create a, a culprit who is so yeah, almost entirely, seemingly without motive. I mean, like, okay, money is a great motive, but but why does she want this money? You know, why is she so... It's like, it's like okay, yes, it was a lot of money, but it's not like she's going to be destitute without it, you know? She has a career she could go back to. You don't, yeah, and you don't get the sense that she became this extravagant, you know, spendthrift, right? Mm-hmm. It's like she lives very comfortably and, and has nice things and... But yeah, it's it's not like she's suddenly jetting around the world. Exactly. She's still living quietly in the country. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe our listeners will have more thoughts about that, like impermeability of, of her character. But I, I think that is really what when critics are talking about a, a kind of potentially veiled homophobia or just the discomfort that that an audience feels regarding the depiction of a, of a kind of queer sexuality in this book. I, I think that's what we're all twigging on a little bit is that discomfort of having a character who who can be read in in that way as like a stereotype and to have her be so excessively cold and murderous mm-hmm. and like and predatory and yeah. take like yeah predatory and taking advantage of a younger person mm-hmm. that's something that you can uh, you know like imagine an, a little bit of homophobic panic you mm-hmm. know when people are just like oh no they're gonna corrupt the young oh they're gonna seduce young people i almost feel like that's something that sayers maybe did subconsciously where she's just like Ooh, what are people afraid of yeah but yeah but i'm just like it's it is troubling that we have mary whitaker as as this predatory figure who who definitely reads as playing on homophobic fears mm-hmm. right like i think whether she's intended to actually be a lesbian or not i think the narrative makes it fairly obvious especially you know like with miss clemson's reference to the clemenstein book mm-hmm. and you know there are some later references like miss clemson has a conversation with vera finn later where she's trying to kind of warn her away from her intimacy with Mary Whitaker and mm-hmm. poor Miss Clemson poor sweet Miss Clemson is encouraging her to maybe be interested in men because <laughs> it's more natural and it's 
can be a fruitful union. And it's mm. just like, oh no, Miss Miss Clemson, oh dear. Miss Clemson, yes. I feel like those fears are being very deliberately referenced and deployed. Kind of played on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, deployed is a good word. And that is something that's maybe separate from whether Mary Whitaker is actually supposed to have a certain sexuality or not, you know? Does that make sense? It does. I think that's a really important distinction to make, that the narrative might be depending on a public stereotype or or public fears. But I, I think it wraps back in some sense, too, to the the question of surplus women, right? Or the problem of surplus women that we talked about last time. Because when mm-hmm. Peter goes to see Mrs. Forrest, like I'm I'm looking at this description of her from his point of view that is in chapter, that's in chapter 15. It says, Mrs. Forrest was handsome enough, but she had not a particle of attraction for him. For all her makeup and her somewhat outspoken costume, she struck him as spinsterish even epicene. And I feel like the use of that word spinsterish is is really deliberate there, right? Where in this book full of spinsters, we're kind of picking up this thread of maybe maybe a fear or a social fear that like, okay, yeah, without enough men around, do women become sexless? Mm-hmm. Do they become lesbians? And I think, you know, I don't think Sayers is deploying that unthinkingly at all, especially given what we know about how she and her friends, you know, were really thoughtful and critical about kind of the limited roles that society offered them as wives and mothers, and how I don't want to put my foot wrong here, but I I feel like that's kind of all in the atmosphere of this book, that there's like a slight poking fun of the ways that you know, maybe old fashioned people like Miss Clemson think about young spinsters. But at the same time, a lot of the suspense and the horror kind of depend on the deployment of these stereotypes as well. The descriptions of Mary Whitaker and her relationship with Vera Finn later is, it's a bit sticky in terms of representation. You know, we talked a little bit in our last episode about how important it is that that portrayal is balanced out by a different portrayal of a relationship that that's very easy to read as a lesbian relationship between Agatha Dawson and Clara Whitaker. We get that story here in chapter 12 in um, A Tale of Two Spinsters. What happens is that Peter and Parker, they take a little a little weekend trip to uh, the town where Agatha Dawson and Clara Whitaker lived and they meet some elderly people who knew them and who kind of described their relationship to them. And you really get the impression that Clara Whitaker and Agatha Dawson were a very devoted couple. And you also kind of get the impression that they had a really balanced partnership. And I feel like that's a really important distinction in terms of what Sayers thought made for a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. You talked last time about how their portrayal is, a, is still a little bit stereotyped in that one of them is a more masculine presentation and one of them is maybe a little bit more traditionally feminine in terms of being the domestic partner. But the stories that Peter hears about them as a couple, you just get the impression that they had a partnership. Mm-hmm. And that's so different from the relationship that we see Mary Whitaker having, for instance, with Vera Finn later, where it's one-sided and controlling and yeah and 
not balanced right. at all. And this comes later in chapter 16, but we get that scene between Miss Clemson and Miss Finlater, right? Where Miss Finlater is saying to Miss Miss Clemson, like, oh, Mary and I have one of those real friendships where like I would die for her. I would, you know, we're we're incredibly loyal to each other. And I mean, on the one hand, it is, I think, also where Miss Clemson is like, oh, dear, maybe you should consider men. Um, but <laughs> have you considered Have you considered having a nice boyfriend? Yeah. And, you know, Miss Finlater is very like, oh, I don't believe that men could possibly have like the depth of friendship that women do. But it's interesting because, I mean, they sort of turn a little bit to to theology, right, where Miss Finlater is saying you know, in the Bible, like, love should be as strong as the grave, and jealousy should be as strong as the grave, and and great friendship makes demands. That's what Christian love means. One's ready to die for the other person. And Miss Clemson responds, well, I don't know. I once heard a sermon about that from a most splendid priest. And he said that that kind of love might become idolatry if one wasn't very careful. He said that Milton's remark about Eve, you know, he forgot only she forgot in him was not congruous with Catholic doctrine. One must get the proportions right. And it was out of proportion to see everything through the eyes of another fellow creature. And so at that point, it's not, you know, Miss Clemson isn't talking about like a, a kind of corrective sexuality. She's talking about corrective proportionality and, and mutuality. Right. It's not about like, oh, just find the right young man and you're going to have like good mutual heterosexual love or whatever. It's it's she's saying like this, this kind of abject worship and loyalty, especially Mm -hmm. when it's not returned correctly, is not it's not healthy for anyone. It's not natural for anyone. You almost feel like she's getting through to Miss Finlater a little bit because Miss Finlater is saying like, uh, but if the friendship is mutual, that was the point, quite unselfish Mm -hmm. on both sides, it must be a good thing. We know that Vera Finlater at this point, Miss Clemson doesn't know, but we, you know, like reading this a second time, we're aware that Vera Finlater is covering for Mary Whitaker at this point. And you Mm -hmm. can, you know, see how she's like convincing herself like she's working really hard to convince herself that things are fine yeah and it's interesting right because the book is very it's very disapproving of the fact that she is lying uh to provide an alibi for mary whitaker because of this loyalty and i don't know you and i were sort of talking backstage as it were about how in clouds of witness freddie arbuthnot very cheerfully perjures himself at one point and it's interesting because in that book i don't i don't feel like there's at all a sense from the narrative or from other characters that he did the wrong thing and i don't know if that's a gendered thing or a class thing or what but i think probably an element of both and then also probably an element of that like it's kind of okay for freddie because it's just like yes he lied on this stand um, but also he's telling the truth to Peter and mm. Peter having the truth is what's most important in terms of the narrative. Right. Because thinking about the series as a whole, because in a couple of the future books, we're going to run into more than one instance where Peter knows a truth that he doesn't share. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked a good bit in our episode so far about Peter's zealousness for truth and the importance of truth. And like, if you know the truth, the the pieces fall into place. Mm -hmm. I think what matters to the narrative 
is that <laughs> Peter has the truth, but not necessarily that the truth is known to everyone, right? right? Peter is in some ways like really handled as the moral authority in some of those situations, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting considering how often we see him struggle with moral decisions and his place in those moral decisions. Right. But I wonder also if that's part of, I don't know, like the narrative always talks about Charles having a kind of stodgy Victorian mm -hmm. kind of morality. <laughs> a solid middle class morality. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is, I mean, there's also an uncomfortable class thing there, right? Of like, oh, if the nobility only thought about things in shades of gray, they, they should make decisions about morality for all of us. But I don't think that it's the nobility in general, you know, like it's very specific to Peter. And I That's I'm, true. Nobody nobody wants Gerald making moral decisions. Right. No one no one wants Gerald <laughs> No one wants Gerald making any moral decisions for anyone. Or Helen. Oh, or, dear. It's very specific to Peter and I don't know if that's because like Peter as the detective is you know, we talked a little bit in a previous episode about how the detective is kind of uh something for the reader to identify with and so like I don't know if Peter being the one who knows the truth is most important just because he he's our stand-in or our representative maybe mm -hmm. in the text and is it that what matters is that we ourselves know the truth is that what's important if you start looking at the way the books handle truth and is Peter the arbiter of who needs to know what truth mm -hmm. I don't know I feel like that kind of comes down to a maybe a more complicated question of like whose truth are we talking about and is it the is it the readers is it societies is it i don't know hmm. i'm doing the thing again where i just say stuff i'm just like i don't know what the answer is but i would be very interested if people want to write a paper about it and send it to us if anyone wants to tackle this as a thesis project please keep us updated yeah, that is what makes these books so interesting, right? That's like why we're doing a podcast. If we had easy answers to any of this, you and I would just be talking about this on our own. There'd be no need to <laughs> to to wander in these directions. But the easy answers in these books are: Do we love these characters? Yes, yeah. we do. And then everything else is complicated. Yeah, I did want to bring up that since we've spoken a little bit of, about class, I do think this book makes several pointed comments about who does the work, uh, which we've been interested in in the past, right? But there's one point in which Parker and Peter are, they're talking about, you know, Mary Whitaker and like what the motive might be. And Parker at one point, I mean, he's saying, you know, it's it's a bit selfish of Miss Dawson to, you know, die without making a will or it's not maybe not selfish, but it's it's self centered. It's not very thoughtful mm -hmm. to Miss Whitaker, you know, after taking the poor girl away from her job under promise of leaving her the dibs. And then uh, Peter retorts, teach the young woman not to be so mercenary. And the narrative says, with the cheerful brutality of the man who has never in his life been short of money. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, being very pointed there about Peter's privilege. And then quite a bit later on, um, Parker's been sent off to try to find various solicitors to kind of like test a hypothesis. And he'd been calling on solicitors for two whole days and his soul sickened at the sight of the brass plate. And oh. and the narrative says, Parker was one of those methodical, painstaking people whom the world could so ill spare. When he worked with Whimsy on a case, it was an understood thing that anything lengthy, intricate, tedious, and soul-destroying was done by Parker. <laughs> oh, 
Parker. I know. I drew a lot of hearts there. And it's, you know, on the one hand, like that is a very, that's certainly a trope, right? Like the the stodgy plotting middle class, dependable detective, the Watson, as it were. But I do think that this book is a little more pointed than the previous two regarding all, all those luxuries that Sayers gave Peter because she herself didn't have them. Like she's, she's now doing a little bit of a, mm, like, what are, what are the ways in which he can't sympathize with other people? <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, Whose Body does have that great bit where it's not even Parker's case. He's just like, well, someone should go ask questions at all the apartments around, you know, like where the body was found and whatever. And Peter's just like, well, you just, just yeah. you do it. You'll be Let good at that. you do that. <laughs> yeah. And Parker's just you. like, well, you won't do it. You won't do it. So I'd better. And mm-hmm. does it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Oh, Parker. I know. Such a dear. I have thought about this and I would not ever want to marry a Peter Whimsey. I love Peter, but I would not ever want to marry a Peter Whimsey. Out of all the characters in the book, I would much rather marry a Parker. Mm, Dependable, not high strung. (laughs) Does the work. Yes. I am high strung enough. I don't think a relationship can handle two of us. Marry a Parker and hire a Bunter. Yes. Which speaking of, can we take it? Can we just take a moment? Because I'm so excited. I have been for years trying to talk my family into getting a robot vacuum, a, a Roomba or Roomba-esque situation. <laughs> this is not a paid advertisement, listeners. This is not a paid advertisement. I'm just so thrilled. And we're finally getting one. Yeah. So we're going to have a robot vacuum. And we were talking about names for it because we have to name our robot. And it wasn't even my idea. My mom suggested that we name it Bunter. Aww. And I'm so excited. There's going to be a little robot <laughs> vacuum trundling around the house and it's going to be named Bunter. And I'm so, that I'm so pleased. so delightful. <laughs> I love that. Oh, I love that. Oh, it's going to be yeah. great. One of Sayers' friends, I, I forget if it was Marielle Sinclair Byrne or Dorothy Rowe or somebody, but Sayers had a friend whose dog was named Bunter. I'm just yes. endlessly pleased by that tidbit. It shall be a very good robot vacuum. Yes, I am so delighted. <laughs> Anyway, yes. Um, robot vacuum digression. Yeah. Well, I think it's because it's far more pleasant than like I know we need to talk about the casual racism in this book, but yes. Uh, Having talked about some mm-hmm. happy things, some cheerful things, shall we have another yeah. downer? Let's. Because we cannot put it off forever because it is an important mm-hmm. thing to talk about. Um. Yeah. The the fact that the N word shows up not just once but multiple times in this book and that is a choice yes that Sayers made and it actually I don't know if it's just that I don't like Unnatural Death is one of the the whimsies I've reread the least but I actually I'd forgotten that this was in here and it was such a shock to see it printed in big letters just just all caps yes uh, yes, in one of Ms. Clemson's letters, she writes it in all caps, which is like, oh my yeah. goodness. And like, I already know the the objection that some of our listeners will have, which is that like she's reporting what someone else has said to her, and it's supposed to be poking fun at how racist this other person is. But uh, the easy argument to make is just like, oh well, the word wasn't so bad at uh, the time, and that. It's one of those things where she's like, okay, maybe it wasn't considered as bad, but that doesn't make it good. 
Right. Like, okay. That doesn't make it fine. I'm sorry. This is the 19, almost 30s. The entire Harlem Renaissance is happening, right? W.E.B. Du Bois is right. Like, there's... <laughs> It, it was not, yeah. I mean, I think in the sense of it was not considered as bad in certain circles. So certainly we can we can make the the sort of like verisimilitude argument that Sayers is representing an attitude that a lot of people would have had. And in, to some degree, like this isn't here for shock value and so forth. But it's still really, really uncomfortable. And it's, to me, it's uncomfortable that she... Like that part of the reason that we as readers can be like, oh, yeah, she's pointing out how racist these other people are is because when they when Peter and Parker go to meet the the long lost cousin, it turns out that he's, you know, actually this like extremely mild, wonderful priest from the West Indies. But like, once again, kind of circling back to what we said with whose body this the the credit to his race. Yeah. Really yeah, like the demand that people of color be respectable before they can be considered human is for me, I mean, like, as a woman of color, like, I'm like, oh, that's that attitude is just never, never great or easy or fun to run across in any of the literature I love, right? Right. Especially mm-hmm. when especially when it's an author that you care about. And especially when it's an author that has this really affirming opinion that people's personhood should come first and that shows up in other areas like gender but then when it comes to race kind of falls down on the job yeah falls falls apart a little bit Mm -hmm. and that's disappointing like disappointing is a a mild (laughs) word but (laughs) yeah I was reading a really good article by Professor Carolyn Batensky that just came out and unfortunately it is so new that it's still behind an academic paywall but I found this article really instructive for me both as a reader and as you know someone who's like trying to grapple with this casual racism in in public and as someone who used mm. to teach. The article is titled Casual Racism in Victorian Literature. So that's that's what it's about. It says it on the tin. <laughs> and she, she's really also the premise is she's teaching Victorian texts to undergraduates and that there is a certain way in which it's often harder to talk about the casual uses of racism or the the casual references. You know, in some sense, it's like it's easier to teach a book like, say, Heart of Darkness, where race and representation of race and of empire and so forth are like very much the point of the book. And so it's so thematically present that you can't, like as an educator, it'd be irresponsible to, to try to sidestep and nobody does. But that there are also when you're teaching like a survey of Victorian literature, early, you know, 20th century literature, there's often these little, just these little, little tidbits scattered throughout, little bits of stereotype, right? So like we talked last time about the offhand mention of the elderly, obese Jewish man in the in the jewelry shop. And here this casual use of the N-word or like when they find Miss Godebed's body, right? Peter's sort of describing the scene and there's a ham sandwich and he says, observe the hard texture, the deep brownish tint of the lean, the rich fat yellow as a Chinaman's cheek, the dark spot, etc, etc. So like Professor Batensky is making the point that it's these like little casual slurs or stereotypes or bits that are in some ways harder to deal with because 
these are texts that we don't especially like associate with racism, Mm -hmm. but in which she says, but in which racist language or figuration occurs nonetheless in, in passing. And on the one hand, like what is, what makes these difficult is because it's, it's so unsurprising, right? Because, because of the ability to say like, oh, well, yeah, everybody, everybody talked like that at the time, or, Mm -hmm. you know, that was, they were just adding a little local color or, or even like, oh, maybe Sayers was critiquing that, you know, people speak in this way. But part of Professor Batensky's argument in this piece is that making those excuses is often just an excuse for ourselves, right? To be able to say like, oh, look how far we've come. Like there's no historic continuity between us, good 21st century people who know not to use the N-word and the people of Sayers' time who were backwards and this and that, or or that like racism is always... Racism is always, you know, people wearing sheets with torches rather than systems of language and of assumptions and of expectations and stereotype that suffuse everything. Like the reason the word showing up is not surprising is because racism is the air we breathe. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I feel like I've wandered in a circle there. Maybe maybe cut that last bit about racism as the air we breathe. Um, <laughs> I don't know, because I mean, like, I feel like that's really effective and true. I was kind of thinking I was having some insomnia. So I was kind of lying awake thinking about the conversation we had about Clouds of Witness, where we we were talking about Mrs. Grimethorpe and kind of the Orientalism mm-hmm. in her description, you know, especially that moment when Peter in the narrative is thinking of her as almost like an an exotic Mm -hmm. mummy dropping the perfumed grave bands from her hands. And I was thinking about that passage. I'm just like, we talked about the Orientalism and exoticizing in that passage. And we kind of didn't take it apart further because that passage, like, it's beautifully written, Mm -hmm. right? It's, It's poetic language. And it serves a really good function in terms of the character where it's drawing these parallels between Miss Grimethorpe as being something that's been trapped or encased and, you know, like something that has been dead but has the potential for a resurrection. You know, like like there's all kinds of like interesting subtext and, and parallels and things happening in that paragraph. And so like it's not a case of that not being mm-hmm. good writing, but it also like very specifically draws all those things like draws a direct line between all those things and the fact that she looks Mm -hmm. foreign and potentially like looks jewish and and i'm just like that's where the the problem is like i feel like it would have been entirely possible to kind of draw those comparisons without making it about like oh you know she's exotic and interesting because she's not white. Right. That paragraph could still have done all those things. Yeah, and it's like there are ways of showing that characters are racist without using racist language, right? Whether Sayers meant to critique the thing or was unthinkingly replicating the thing, the moment that you use the language of the thing that maybe even you're trying to to take apart or to critique um, the harmful language, right? Like the very harmful language that does harm and that, you know, indicates to me at least that like whoever her imagined audience was, it maybe certainly wasn't Black people, which seems like a huge oversight. Uh, 
replicating the problematic thing in trying to critique the problematic thing is still a problem. Right. You know, you mentioned being surprised Mm -hmm. to reread this book and see it on the page. I was even more surprised because I think I've, I've mentioned on the podcast before that I love the Ian Carmichael audiobooks and I have listened to the audiobooks, you know, far more times than I've actually read the books on the page just because at my former office job, which was extremely boring, I kind of survived by listening to audiobooks and I listened to the Whimsy audiobooks at least twice a year for several years at that job. (laughs) So I'm very familiar with the audiobooks and you mentioned you're just like, oh, I was surprised by the use of the N-word. I was just like, what? The what? The use of the where? (laughs) Because it's omitted from the audiobook entirely. They just replace it in the text with the term black man. Uh, Yeah. And the text loses nothing at all, really. Mm -hmm. And it just shows how easy it is to kind of discuss the racism of other characters is still very clearly portrayed in their actions without the use of the word itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's quite clear from all the other contexts that the people Miss Clemson encounters in this little village are provincial or narrow-minded or so forth, right? Because they gossip, because they, like, there's that really funny bit where one of the characters is like, oh, yes, you know, she's referring to Miss Clemson, and I forget what her, like, her, what she calls herself when she's undercover, but, you know, she, um, this other character refers to her as a roaming Catholic, and so, like, that to me, I'm like, that's funny, you know, that's, that's like a really good way to show that this character is, like, not very open-minded and, like, maybe not very worldly or so forth. Um, and it does not rely on racist language. Well, we came to this a little bit backwards, discussing the, the use of the slur without talking about the, the character that it's in reference to. Cousin Hallelujah. Because <laughs> turns out, this book revolves around an inheritance plot and a long lost cousin. Yes, the Dawson's, um, Agatha Dawson's family. Uh, one of the things that Peter learns when he digs into the history of the family is that if you go um, up the family tree and down another branch a little bit, uh, you find a, a long lost cousin named Hallelujah. He's Hallelujah mm-hmm. Dawson. He's a, a mixed race gentleman from the West Indies. He's a reverend. He's a reverend in poor circumstances who came to England and came looking for Agatha Dawson while she was still alive and met her um, and she was giving him an, an allowance. Mm-hmm. And once Peter untangles the, the family tree, he discovers that Mary Whitaker is not actually Agatha Dawson's niece, even though they, they used those terms for mm-hmm. each other. Mary Whitaker is the great niece, I believe, of Clara Whitaker. And Clara Whitaker's brother was married to Agatha Dawson's mm-hmm. sister. So um, Mary Whitaker is only Agatha Dawson's like great niece by marriage. So she's no longer the closest relation. Right. So like with the introduction of Hallelujah Dawson as a cousin down another branch of the family tree, he would actually have been um, a closer relative to Agatha Dawson than Mary Whitaker. So you would think that Mary Whitaker would have a motive to get rid of Hallelujah. But Peter and Parker locate Hallelujah. They go to visit him at this little mission and he explains very openly that he 
had done some research into his own family history and made the unfortunate discovery that his grandfather or great-grandfather had claimed to to marry a woman from the West Indies and had given her a a fake marriage certificate. Mm -hmm. But so like actually he's not a legitimate descendant and just completely wipes out the long lost relative inheritance plot just immediately mm-hmm. and and in some ways you know like it's really funny where peter's just like well we've we, we think we've got this all figured out and then they go and meet hallelujah and he's just like no it turned out that i had no i had no claim on miss dawson at all but i introduced myself to her and she was she was very kind to me and gave me lunch and, <laughs> and was giving me a small allowance yeah and we actually know from miss clemson's letter that when Hallelujah visited Miss Dawson. Miss Dawson's cook walked out mm-hmm. because she wouldn't serve lunch to a black man. And so you you do get that contrast between like Agatha Dawson being, fa- you know, like kind mm-hmm. and fair minded and hospitable and the attitude of her former cook. Mm-hmm. And you also find out that Mary Whitaker did not continue the small allowance that Agatha Dawson was giving to Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. Which, like, why why not Mary Whitaker, who has all this money? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, uncomfortably later on, she tries to frame him, right? And she, yeah. she tries to frame him in, like, the most racist terms possible, mm-hmm. where she stages... An abduction of herself and of Vera Finn later and like uses pulp novels to to try to tie it to to like a black culprit. And and I think I mean, certainly the book really condemns that like there's to be fair, the really outright racist attitudes are always connected to to like bad characters, right? Or to like in the in the case of Mary Whitaker to a villain or even the like the cook who walked out it's it's clear from context that like as readers we're meant to to see her as small-minded or like not you know not as accepting as as Miss Dawson and Miss Dawson is portrayed in a positive light for for being accepting but yeah so that's that's all there i just like just could have just done without the word <laughs> yeah do you want to give our readers a little sketch of that abduction plot yeah so this comes towards the end of the book. Um, our detectives are closing in on on Mary Whitaker, and she disappears with Vera, leads them on a merry chase, and then finally Peter and Parker and some local constables find Vera Finlitter's body. Or Vera Finlater. This is the first murder that Mary commits that is not sort of hidden as a as a quote unquote natural death. It's it's very violent. And the, I mean, the whole scene where they find her is actually really, really incredible. It has a nightmare quality, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Kind of going back to that, like we were talking about how well Sayers describes really gruesome things without gruesome description, right? We we really don't ever, like we don't get a pan in on on her face or her head, but like when Peter's approaching the body... It's like he almost starts dissociating again. Yeah, the language becomes so vague and 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 distant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there are these little details of like, oh, the person was sleeping oddly. The flies must be a nuisance all over her, her head like that. And then the flies rose up in a little cloud, which is just... Ugh. Um, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so 
so Mary Whitaker's killed Vera Finlater in this fashion. Mm -hmm. And then she stages a, a little scene of herself being dragged into a car. So this is all done through like footprints and tire marks and so forth. Um, but it's made to look like she's being dragged into a car. And in the car that's left behind, there's a bright purple hat. There's And there's a pulp magazine, a an American magazine of mystery and sensational fiction published under the name of The Black Mask. And she's underlined. She's underlined the word black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Peter and Parker kind of see through this immediately, but the the constable of the town who's accompanied them says, God bless my soul, an English girl in the hands of a black man, how abominable. It's really, Mary Whitaker is very deliberately playing on these tropes. You know, she, she knows that would sort of be the immediate conclusion that a lot of people would draw. And she seemingly has no remorse about that. And, and she sends a massive check to Hallelujah Dawson, which he like, you know, merrily is like, oh, great. She wants to honor her aunt's bequest. Like he goes and cashes it and gets arrested right away. Right. Which we're talking about like, oh, isn't it terrible that Mary Whitaker is framing Hallelujah Dawson? But it's also a fact that Peter and Parker deliberately allow it to happen. Mm -hmm. They could have prevented Hallelujah from going and cashing the check, but they want Mary Whitaker to think that her frame her frame up worked. Yeah. And so they allow poor Hallelujah to be publicly arrested. And I'm like, I, I hope that they warned the people who were going to be arresting them. They're like, he's not actually a criminal. Like, mm -hmm. just take him you know, aside and and explain that he's being arrested for show. Yeah. But we don't, we don't know that, in fact. No. And right. And the, and the fact that the narrative makes no point about that, like that it's... Uh-huh. Like, like the narrative does not reassure us on that point. Mm -mm. And I don't know if that's because the narrative even has an awareness about what often yeah. happens to black bodies in a, in a white carceral state, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. again, one of those like places where you know i mean we'd just we'd be guessing about how much sayers was aware of these kinds of things but it, it's not yeah. it's it's I'm, very uncomfortable it's it's uncomfortable and like i'm glad that i'm glad that it's uncomfortable mm -hmm. you know because i just imagine how when this book was written many people probably wouldn't have even noticed yeah it, it wouldn't have been in the cultural awareness and i'm glad that it's in the cultural awareness now i wish it had been in the more in the cultural awareness then mm -hmm. it is uncomfortable and you know, I find this book difficult to discuss because in a lot of ways, like, I like this book as a mystery. Mm -hmm. I think that the mystery functions really well. I think it's really, it's tightly plotted. All the, like, all the moving pieces fit tightly and, like, the, there's so many different characters who are interesting with unique voices. But also, like, there are things about this book that I find genuinely upsetting. Yeah. Like, the murder of Vera Finlater... I'm, I just, to me, that's really horrific. Mm -hmm. This poor innocent girl who's so young, who just wants to be important to somebody. Yeah. And is so innocent. And then like being brutally murdered for the convenience of someone else. I'm just like, that's awful. And the murder of Bertha Godebet, another innocent young person who she was engaged to be married soon. Her life was just beginning. And then, like, she's just murdered out of the blue, and she doesn't even know why. And we joked about how this book has a high body count and how there's lots of murder in it. But it's that the plot hinges on 
multiple murders, mm-hmm. you know, like Peter talks about Peter talks about how in cases like this, when you can't prove in the original murder that a murder happened, your only hope is for the murderer to slip up because they keep trying to cover their right. tracks. You know, he talks about how murderers can't leave well enough alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about that last time that like if if she had just stopped at one, nobody would have ever known. <laughs> yeah, there would have been nothing. But the thing is, like, I think one of the reasons that those deaths are so uncomfortable, right? Like, Bertha go to bed and Vera Finn later died because Peter stirred the anthill mm-hmm. with a stick. And, you know, we talked in our episodes about whose body, you know, like, there's that wonderful theological conversation that Peter has with Parker about, like, should I be investigating this? Is this my business? Mm-hmm. And this book, at the very beginning, we, Dr. Carr tells peter he's just like no no don't bother investigating this it's not your business and peter's just like i'm going to anyway because i want to know i can't leave it alone Mm -hmm. and parker throughout like the first half of the book keeps telling peter he's just like you don't really have a case and it's like it's not really your business and why are we doing this and peter just keeps digging and poking and people die because of it and like i like i personally can't read this book and go like peter doesn't have any responsibility because I'm just like, no, he does. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's directly responsible for this happening. I mean, you can't, not in the sense that you can be responsible for what someone else chooses to do. Because Mary Whitaker could have chosen not to kill people. Mm-hmm. But there is a direct line of cause and effect between Peter's choices and these young women dying. And I find, like, I've just, I find that hard to chew on when I read this book and and think about it critically. Like, it's one thing to just read the book and be a little bit detached because it's just like, oh, it's a mystery. Mm-hmm. But but when you start reading the book and start thinking about things in terms of of real people and like real cause and effect and, and real moral responsibility, it starts starts being a little bit of a mouthful. Yeah, I definitely feel that way. And I think the the ways to which like racial stereotype and in some ways, sexual stereotype get de- deployed in this book or make it such that I I can never really just enjoy it. Um, yeah. I mean, I... Like, all these things are almost weaponized, yeah. right? You know, like, we talked about how it plays directly and deliberately on homophobic fears. Mm-hmm. And certainly on racial fears. Yeah. Right. On racial fears and on racial stereotypes and how many ways the plot hinges on those mm-hmm. things. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's become, it becomes a big sticky thing. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think for me, it's like, these are, these are real attitudes that are still around and still do harm. Mm-hmm. And so I think even the use of them as red herrings, right. Or even the use of them as ways of cluing in the reader to who is or is not a good character or which characters do or do not have good moral character. Like, I I think I'm still really uncomfortable with that because it's not, these things don't just exist in fiction, right? Right. These things don't exist in a vacuum either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like how I think, like, I really love cozy mysteries and I do read some contemporary mystery, but I I think I I always take issue with mysteries where like part of the point of view or like mysteries or thrillers where part of the point of view is from the perspective of the murderer. I feel like you see this a lot in contemporary thriller where, you know, part of the story is told from like a psychopathic point of view um, or, you know, a serial killer of women. And I just I never want to be in that perspective. Like I never, I just, I don't enjoy it. I don't, 
even even when it's very obvious, you know, like it's it's not like every writer of mystery is themselves misogynist or whatever. But I'm just like, I don't these these attitudes are like prevalent enough in in life that I just yeah I I don't if you can turn it on and see it and the pundits on the news you don't need it in your fiction exactly I don't and I don't need to be asked to like step into that perspective so I think that's really that's really where I come down on this book I don't I don't reread it very often and I agree that it's like a fairly airtight haha mystery um pun intended as we'll get to in a second but but yeah the I I find it to be like probably the darkest of the whimsy books yeah and it's interesting to me you know like I'm approaching it you know like as as a a white reader who you know some of these things when I'm not thinking about it critically like you know they just went under the radar for me Mm -hmm. and so you know like I had read it and enjoyed it many times before I started to go like wait 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 a second and engaging with it critically really changes the narrative a lot. Yeah. And I don't like, there is certainly a kind of enjoyment that comes from deep critical reading, right? I think, I think it's a false binary when people, um, for example, like a lot of times people, when they find out that I've done graduate study in English, they're like, oh, can you still read books for fun? Like, are you able to to turn <laughs> off the critical part of your brain? And to me, like, that's never the right question because like that part of my brain is always attuned to what's happening in literature. And it's there's an assumption, I think, in that question that it's not deeply enjoyable to like read with a really critical eye. Um, right. It's not. not yeah. Fun. Yeah. Like there's there's a way in which I, I very much appreciate like how the the literary training that I've had allows me to, you know, put my finger on aspects of books where I'm like, oh, I'm having a reaction. And like, what is that coming from? And, and being able to take that apart and maybe even have some critical distance. But um, so like in this case, I, yeah, I have a lot to say about this book, um, but I don't, I don't, this is not bath time reading for me, shall we say? Well, should we talk about the how done it? Yes, I think maybe let's go into that by going back a little bit to um, when Peter and Parker leave town to go visit the, the village mm. where... Clara Whitaker and Agatha Dawson lived because they run into someone on the way there, uh, someone who's not an important character. So they meet this young man who doesn't know how to fix his motorcycle. And Peter has a look and magically (laughs) fixes it and explains that he blew through the filler cap because there was an airlock in the feed and that that fixed it. And that's a little bit of a fun detail because we know that Sayers liked motorcycles, Mm -hmm. that she rode a motorcycle herself a bit. And when I was kind of digging around, I saw someone kind of make the claim that the the knowledge of the motorcycle engine and and hence the murder method in this book was because of Sayers had an affair with a mechanic. And I'm just like, hmm, (laughs) is it... Is it because she had an affair with a mechanic or is it because she herself liked motorcycles? Right. Hmm. And um, why not both? <laughs> so I am. Why not yeah. both? So, yes, yeah, so I am not inclined to give any particular credit to. I know. So many biographers want to attribute like all the interesting things about these books to the men that Sayers knew. And I'm just never about that. Right. Like we talked about with mm-hmm. Mo Moulton, you know, when we were discussing their new book, A Mutual Admiration Society, yeah. that there's so much about Sayers that came from the 
these incredible women in her life and had nothing to do with the men at all. So, yes, but so Sayers herself liked motorcycles, but yeah, so um, this idea of an air bubble blocking a, a line in an engine so that it's not getting mm-hmm. fuel, it like directly inspires the, the murder method or, you know, helps and that helps Peter realize what the murder method is, which is the injection of an air bubble into a vein or into an artery i think i think it's a vein in this book but it it should be an artery which which i which i do think sayers acknowledged in a letter later on that she was like so painstaking and meticulous yeah. and then <laughs> like made that big mistake but yeah so the the whole idea is that the the artery would carry the air bubble into the heart and stop the heart uh-huh right and i like my mom mm-hmm. is a nurse and I asked her one time, I'm just like, hey, would this work? And she was just like, yeah, it would. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, it's so easy to kill people. I, I don't like that. It, it's so easy. It's it's like, um, you know how in American Gods by Neil Gaiman, there's like this one con that uh, I think Neil said that he he's very careful not to put in every single detail that's needed so that like uh-huh. readers can't replicate the con themselves it's like a bank <laughs> robbery or something he's like i left out a few important details because i realized i would just be like giving people instruction yeah <laughs> um, yeah yeah i mean like sometimes you you read stuff and you're just like oh wow it's so easy to take advantage of people it's so easy to hurt people it's so easy to murder it people look like a natural death yeah i don't like yeah. that i i don't like how vulnerable that mm-hmm. makes me feel but yes, I asked my mom about it and she was just like, yes, it would need to be a larger bubble and it would need to be like in a major, you couldn't just right. do it anywhere. It would need to be in a major artery. But she was just like, yeah, it would be really bad. That's why, you know, people are really careful when they're giving shots, you know, like they tap out the air. Yeah. Because it would cause problems, you know, even like in a, you know, a small bubble somewhere else. It, mm-hmm. It's not good. But she was just like, yeah, it would cause heart failure if you did a large air bubble into a major yep. artery. And that is what Mary Whitaker has yeah. been doing to people. And she, I mean, you know, it plays into her background as a nurse, right? She would know this. And it gives the appearance that death is brought on by heart failure, which is a, a very natural way to go in some sense. And and the book, I mean, there are just, yeah, there are multiple places where someone mentions, you know, among many other details that there was like a syringe in the room or so forth. And so it's very much the clues are all there. Right. And we know that Mrs. Forrest has a prescription for an injection mm-hmm. for headaches, right? So she has syringes in her apartment mm-hmm. that, that Peter sees when he's Right. And Peter around. even like early on, he speculates like, oh, you know, was it possible that Miss Dawson's injections got got mixed up and you know maybe she was given too much morphine or something and and like there's a big deal made out of the the doctor's like requested autopsy report right that showed no no signs of overdose or so forth yeah 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 so yeah it's it's, uh, it's terrifyingly easy to kill people uh listeners please don't kill people before we talk about kind of like the final confrontations Mm -hmm. though um, we talked, to, we, you know, I, I went off on a little bit of a rabbit trail talking about, like, Peter's responsibility. You know, Sayers has been kind of engaging with the question of Peter's responsibility, like moral responsibility throughout the book. You know, we talked about how when he hears about Bertha Gotobed's death, he says, you know, Charles, I feel like a murderer, uh, which is mm-hmm. fair. And, you know, and he 
shortly after this conversation is when he participates in the the search for Vera Finn later and he's the one who finds her body and you know that he doesn't fully disassociate the way he does in whose body but he there's a there's an echo in the way that that's written and the way that the autopsy scene in whose mm-hmm. body is written yeah. you know where where Peter is it's almost like he's looking at things at at events from outside himself mm-hmm. it's not as much of focus in this book I would say as it is in like whose body but Peter Peter is dealing with it mm-hmm. a little bit and he has this fascinating conversation with Mr. Treadgold who's the the priest um in the village where Miss Whitaker lives and where Miss Miss Clemson has been living undercover and he goes to the church looking for Miss Clemson and, and meets the priest and they have a conversation where Whimsy kind of unburdens his conscience a little mm-hmm. bit. And the the priest says, is anything bothering you in particular? And Whimsy says, nothing religious. I don't mean nothing about infallibility or the Virgin Mary or anything of that sort. Just something I'm not comfortable about. And he kind of explains without names uh, to Mr. Treadgold this idea of, you know, like, suppose, suppose one knows somebody who's very, very ill and can't last long. And they're in awful pain and all that and kept under morphia. Just suppose. Um, hypothetical. Ju- just suppose. Uh, uh, supposing somebody who knew all that was just to give him a little push off, so to speak. He's kind of asking the priest if Mary Whitaker did something morally wrong in the first place, right? By murdering her aunt. By, you know, by causing the death of Agatha mm-hmm. Dawson, who we, at this point, we've we've kind of found out that the motive for the murders is that a new inheritance law was coming into effect where if someone wasn't closely related enough, then they didn't count as next of kin. Mm-hmm. And the like the inheritance would go to the crown. Like it would it would essentially go to the yeah. to the government. And because of the complexities of the Dawson and Whitaker family trees, Mary Whitaker would actually not be close enough of a relative maybe like the wording of the of the act was a little bit ambiguous and you know we find out because of parker's painstaking <laughs> talking running down lawyer <laughs> running down of lawyers that someone matching mary whitaker's description did go and consult a lawyer and he told her if your relative dies without making a will the money may mm-hmm. go to the crown and so like that's what starts mary whitaker off on first trying to trick her aunt into signing a will and then leads to her her murdering her aunt and many other people like she and she goes back and other tries people. to murder that lawyer that she consulted to. right and she and she did try so and murder laugh. that lawyer it's not funny but it's it, it's it is it's, it's it's mm-hmm. a lot of murder and, and and so but peter is is talking to the priest and saying you know like the the aunt wanted this money to go to the niece and the niece, by causing the aunt's death at this specific time before the act went into effect, was making sure that she got the money so that her aunt's wishes were being carried out. So, and she was taking her out of this, like, of, of being in, in terrible pain. So it wasn't really that bad. <laughs> and one of the things that I think is, is interesting is when, like, the priest says, I think that the sin, oh, well, I won't use that word, the damage to society the wrongness of the thing lies much more in the harm it does the killer than in anything it can do to the person who is killed. Especially, of course, if, if the killing is to the killer's own advantage. 
And he says that that puts it at once on a different plane from just hastening a person's mm-hmm. death out of pity. Right. Because the killer is operating to their own advantage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says sin is in the intention, not the deed. That is the difference between divine law and human law. It is bad for a human being to get to feel that he has any right whatever to dispose of another person's life to his own advantage. It leads him on to think himself above all laws. Society is never safe from the man who has deliberately committed murder with impunity. That is why, or one reason why, God forbids private vengeance. I think that that's very interesting, like, as a theological point. And it's also, in some ways... Almost as if Sayers is saying that Mary Whitaker murdering additional people was inevitable regardless of what Peter mm-hmm. did. Which, I mean, like, may have been true. You know, like, maybe not the specific people that she murders in this book. But, you know, like, maybe at some point in the future someone else would have been in her way. Or, you know, in between something that she wanted or something that she felt entitled right, and to. Been, because we don't... Right, because Mr. Treadgood is saying, like, the harm it does to the killer is that it... It, it like chips away at their morality, right? It, that Right. He says in any case, it leads to readiness to commit mm-hmm. others, you know, like uh, in, to commit mm-hmm. additional murders. Though I don't think, do you think the book is really letting Peter off the hook that much? Because the ending is so... Right. I don't know that it's letting him off mm-hmm. a lot, but I do think it's, that it's trying to balance. Um, and like here, Peter says... My beastly interference started the crimes all over mm-hmm. again. You know, the the priest says, I shouldn't be too troubled. Probably the murderer's own guilty fears would have led him into fresh crimes, even without your right. interference. You know, which Mary Whitaker did try to murder mm-hmm. the lawyer before Whimsy right. did anything. Yeah. And the priest says, my advice to you is to do what you think is right, according to the laws which we have been brought up to respect. Leave the consequences to God. And try to think charitably, even of wicked people. You know what I mean. Bring the offender to justice, but remember that if we all got justice, you and I wouldn't escape either. This is this is a very short encounter. Like, this is just a couple of pages, this conversation. It's not like they have an extremely deep mm-hmm. heart-to-heart. But I think it's, it's part of that theme that is, you know, that got started in Whose Body and is going to run all the way through the series, right? Of what is... Not just what is the private detective's moral responsibility, but how this instinct in Peter for the truth, like as much as he might say, like, oh, yes, I'm, I'm doing this to give my poor PTSD rattled brain something to do, right? I, I go off chasing these hairs because it's interesting or because I'm curious. There is a point at which his, his adherence to truth takes over and he can't, it's almost like he can't help himself. He has to keep going. But at great personal emotional cost and I mean the 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 very end of this book like it's the book ends in literal darkness right Peter gets word that Mary Whitaker's killed herself awaiting trial Mm -hmm. and in the final several paragraphs you know it says whimsy said nothing he felt cold and sick and everyone's making the the necessary arrangements right because like Mary Whitaker has hung herself in her her cell and Peter and Parker go Mm -hmm. view the body Yeah. And then at the very, very end of the novel, Peter says, what is the matter with the day, said Whimsy, is the world coming to an end? No, said Parker, it is the eclipse. And that's, that's it, right? Like we cut out on this image of them walking back out into the London day. And it's like pale and yellowish outside and cold and raining and, and everything is darkness. And I think 
I think there is a way in which it's it's a cathartic novel. Like we were talking last time about catharsis and this novel has catharsis in that the murderer is brought in and found out and, you know, we, we find out how she did this thing. But I think there's not, there's no emotional catharsis for Peter. We're kind of left with this final image of him just just feeling cold and sick and horrible. And, and I think that's, you know, I often close the book also feeling a little bit cold and sick and horrible. Yeah. And like that imagery of the eclipse is so it's interesting that the eclipse isn't like anticipated right. in the in the course of the book. Like it's At not all. mentioned. Yeah. You're just surprised by it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we had an uh, eclipse fairly recently and the way the, the, the light is altered is everything looks a little bit alien uncanny, yeah yeah and yeah that that mental image of the world kind of being their wrong colors and and shadows being wrong and the idea of this book ending on that note of everything everything mm-hmm. looks wrong i do think that that's a really interesting choice yeah it's very it leaves us very unsettled yeah it's it's unsettling and like this is an unsettling book you know like I said earlier like it's possible to read it and just be reading it for the mystery and and being like oh yeah this is interesting mm-hmm. but then like once you kind of start unraveling the emotional threads it's it's uh it's it's disconcerting yeah, yeah it's a toughie yeah and I you know I was not anticipating that when we went huh. into this book would you still suggest that people start with this book? I would not. Like having read it critically, which is I hadn't really mm-hmm. done before. I had thought about Whose Body critically and I had thought about the Harriet Vane books, you know, much more in terms of critical reading. But I this is a confession <laughs> to our readers. But the pre-Harriet Vane mysteries, I tended to kind of disregard as being like the light ones. Mm-hmm. And now that we're we're tackling this project and I'm reading them again, you know, kind of reading them as an English major as opposed to just a reader <laughs> the way I did before, it is a different yeah. ball game, and it does change the way that I that I read the book. And I'm just like, oh, I actually don't think <laughs> this is such a great entry point anymore. And I am going like, I wonder if unpleasantness at the Bologna Club is gone rereading it. Am I going to think like, oh yes, that might be another good one to recommend to people that I don't think want to jump quite so far ahead as Strong Poison. I guess we'll find out once we start talking about it. I guess that we will. But first, before we get to the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club, we have a special holiday episode coming up. Join us in two weeks to discuss The Locked Room. This is a Dorothy L. Sayers short story that appeared for the very first time in print this year. You can find it in the anthology Bodies from the Library 2, edited by Tony Medawar. We'll include some links in our show notes if you don't have the book yet and you want to purchase it, or your friendly neighborhood librarian encourages you to request it at your local library. We're also going to be answering some questions from you, our listeners. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at whimsypod. That's whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. Our website, where you can find transcripts for each episode, as well as links to any resources we mentioned on today's podcast, is asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd be really grateful if you would give us a rating and leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcaster of choice. We also hope that you'll...